1: happy guy Then he ate a molded pumpkin pie then he thought that he just couldn't
2: die so then he
1: laughed so all
0: Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-404. Huh, that's kind of nice, huh? Is that error 404, site not found? But you, this site has been found. This is the point where I frantically tried to remember all those great stories, amusing anecdotes, and funny things that I had ready to go when I was running, but now... Retreat into the fog of my memory like scared children confronted by the full blank whiteness of the empty page and blinking cursor. Bam, right out of the gate. 54-word sentence. Yeah. Homeric in its epicness. I am a prose god. So, uh, editor's note, Microsoft Word wants to change epicness to epicenes, which is an entirely different thing. That's a Greek word meaning containing both sexes, so androgynous or hermaphroditic. And if I wanted to use either of those words, I would. So get out of my computer, Bill Gates. Now I'm picturing the poor, confused new listener who thought they were tuning into a running podcast and instead they're getting the crazy etymology tantrum So welcome to the inside of the Run Run Live Hive Mind, my friends. Sometimes it's a bit fractal in here. But yes, we do talk about endurance sports. And I have been easing myself back into Twitter after a couple of years off. And there is a group out there called Run Chat, hashtag Run Chat, that has a lot of good running stuff in it. And that's nice. And that's where I found today's guest. Today's guest is cool because it's a cool place. And uh, I like cool places to run and to explore. And these folks have gone off to the edge of the map in Scandinavia to set up a running adventure company in the fjords and mountains. And the photos are spectacular. That's what drew me to them. Real, Real Viking land stuff. Which causes me to remember one of those amusing anecdotes. Have you ever heard of Ragnar Lodbrok, the famous Viking chieftain who plundered around Francia and Anglo-Saxon Britain in the late 700s? Well, Lodbrok is composed of two Germanic words and literally translated means hairy breeches or hairy pants. So you got to wonder how he got that name. And you can kind of see some of the English words in there. Think locks, as in flowing locks of hair and breech, like breeches, right? So lod, broch, locks, breeches. And, uh, it's all because Old English and Old Norse actually both came from a common Indo-European root language. In section one, I'll talk about my nutrition and diet and what it looks like this cycle that's getting me lean. And in section two, I'll talk about a little book I read about fear. And yes, as we speak, I am speaking of fear. And yeah, <laughs> I'm about six weeks away from the Boston Marathon, which in runner speak means four more weeks of big miles and hard training and two weeks of taper. My training is going really well. I'm still quite lean, and I've been sticking to my diet plan for the most part. You know, I'm battling with the weather though. every time I have a hard workout, it seems like it's snowing or raining or a deep freeze. So I've been spending a ton of time on the treadmill, which is good and bad. I mean it's good because I can cleanly set paces that I want to that I want to hold and hold them. Uh, there, and it's bad because the treadmill is not a hundred percent. It does not translate a hundred percent to road training. and you have to always remember that. And for instance, this week, I, I knocked off 18 miles on the treadmill on Sunday with 14 in the middle at my target race pace minus 7 to 10 seconds per mile. So that's pretty good workout, substantial workout. And if I had done that outside in the freezing rainstorm we were having, my pace would have been all over the place and my effort level would have been all over the place and I'm not sure I would get the same benefits of the workout. You know, I need some confidence. I need that confidence of knowing I can hold those paces. So it's good and it's bad. Now, over the next four weeks, I'm sure we'll be throwing in some longer stuff, some 20-plus milers and some some race-specific stuff. But all else being equal, I feel great. Light, fast, strong, and healthy. Not bad. So one of my habit changes that has been successful in this cycle has been nutrition. And one of those things I do is how I'm making my suppers. Because a big challenge for me was always I come home from work, I'm ravenous, and I just eat a whole bunch of stuff. So in an ideal world, I wouldn't eat anything late in the evening. But when I get home from work, I'm starving, right? So the habit change that I've been doing is I use my cast iron skillet to saute up some vegetables when I come through the door. And this gives me something to do. Takes like 20 to 30 minutes to prepare. And the resulting dinners are healthy and they fill me up and they are nutrition dense and calorie reasonable. So you take your big cast iron skillet, you put it over the medium heat, you pour in a glug of olive oil, You dice up a garlic clove or two, dice up a small onion, dice up a teaspoon-sized chunk of ginger. That's the secret ingredient, that ginger, the root, the actual root. Don't use the stuff out of a shaker. And put all this into the pan and stir it around in the oil until it starts sizzling and the onions are clear. A couple of minutes. And while that's cooking, you cut up your veg, you know, and I don't care what it is. It can be mushrooms, cabbage, squash, broccoli, whatever you have, whatever you like. And you fill up the skillet because those veggies, they shrink as they cook. And saute that whole thing while mixing it so it doesn't burn, maybe another five minutes. And then you pour in, you know, a half a cup or a cup of stock of some sort or water. You can also throw bullion in there just to get the steam going, because you want to steam these things. And you can cover it, and it will cook faster, but it will get soggier. So that's your choice there. Um, Alternatively, what I do is I just, you know, you keep mixing it every so often so it cooks evenly. So you serve that out over rice or plain, anything else you have. And the key ingredient here is that ginger. That ginger makes it taste like restaurant food. It's really good. And it's good for your stomach, too, good for your digestion. And that'll fill you up. While you're waiting to cook, you can clean the kitchen up a bit. Kill two birds with one stone. Wait, actually, I heard that PETA, the Society for the Protection of uh, Animals, does not want us to use those animal-threatening phrases anymore. They want us to modify our speech to be more animal-friendly. So, instead, let's say you can feed two birds with one scone, because birds... They like scones. On with the show.
2: It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength.
0: So the funny story here is that my daughter asked me to tell her what my what, I, what my current diet was because we were running out of room in the refrigerator with her making her own food, me making my own food, my wife making her own food, and we... Uh, We ran out of room in the refrigerator and the freezer. So instead of just telling her, I, of course, wrote it up. And so this is my current diet and meal planning. And I thought it would be useful for people, you know, because I have managed to lose a lot of weight and be lean and be healthy and, and all that stuff in this training cycle. So for the last few months, I have been following a very predictable diet, which makes meal planning quite predictable as well. And this comes out to around two to 3,000 calories a day. Some days I'm under, some days I'm over. I try to be consistent. I don't worry about it too much. So things I am not eating or trying to avoid are most cheese and dairy, most packaged or prepared foods, most bread, especially white bread or any kind of pastry, uh, candies, sweets, ice cream, white rice, takeout food, processed sandwich meat, soda or diet soda, pasta, especially white pasta, and anything with a lot of sugar in it, anything processed with a lot of sugar in it. Things I am eating, a lot of fruit, vegetables, meat, fish, eggs, fats, oils, quinoa, nuts, nut milk, whole grains, beans, brown rice, whole rice, a lot of other stuff. So what do I eat for breakfast? Well, for breakfast, I'll have one of three things. 80 to 90% of the time, I will have classic oatmeal. And this is not the soak overnight, steel-cut oatmeal. That's too much work for me. It's a compromise. It's better than the soupy quick oats, and I can cook them in about two minutes in the microwave in the morning. It's good. In my oatmeal, I put fruit. My preference is blueberries. Typically, a container of blueberries in the fridge will last about a week for breakfasts. I also have a bag of frozen blueberries in the freezer if fresh blueberries are not available. And in a pinch, I'll resort to raisins or mix some of those in, but those tend to have a lot of sugar in them. I will also put a teaspoon of coconut oil in my oatmeal. And depending on my mood, maybe a teaspoon of honey or a dash of cinnamon. I will alternatively use bananas or homemade applesauce or other fruits if I have some of those on the verge of going bad in inventory. So applesauce is a good one. It takes some time to prepare, but it's a good way to use up inventory of overripe apples. And it takes up a a very small container in your fridge or your freezer. If we have a surfeit of avocados ripening, I will have avocado toast for breakfast, and all this requires is a ripe avocado, a dash of olive oil, a dash of lemon juice. You mix them up in a bowl, and you spread on whole grain toast. Requires no fridge space. Cannot be prepared ahead of time. It is an opportunistic meal based on the availability of a ripe avocado. And then third, I may eat eggs maybe twice a month. I'll fry up some eggs for something different. So for breakfast inventory, if you're looking at stocking inventory for breakfast, it's a big container of classic oats. It's a pint of fresh blueberries. It's a pint of frozen blueberries. It's a jar of coconut oil, some honey, some eggs, cinnamon, ripe avocados, healthy bread. That's it. I'll send you a list if you want it. So what do I do for lunch? For lunch, I have a salad. And this salad has some sort of protein in it. I like to make a big batch of these salads, enough for a work week, and I keep them in the fridge in containers, individual containers. The baseline for these salads is nutrient-rich leaf vegetable of some sort. If it is in season, I will get kale, Tuscan kale, red kale, Swiss chard. And if those are looking a bit sad, like they are this time of year, I'll grab a bag of Savoy spinach. If I can't find any of those, I'll settle for that uh, baby spinach that they, they give you in the box, but that stuff goes bad really fast. So I cut that up, and I put in any other vegetable that looks good or is available. Tomatoes, cucumbers, celery, carrots, cabbage, peppers, green onions, mushrooms, whatever looks good. Cut it all up, mix it in a big bowl, put it into individual containers for the week. Now the protein can be chicken, sardines, but I try to only eat fish once a week. Uh, because I'm worried about the mercury. So I'll have a half a can of tuna or a can of sardines. Boiled eggs, meat, beans, chickpeas. I might also throw in a ripe avocado, usually instead of the protein, if if one of those is uh, opportunistically (laughs) available. Uh, The meat, the boiled eggs, and the beans, all that stuff has to be prepped ahead of time. The chicken or other meat is just a basic sauté. I cut up uh, one or two ounces of that, and I add it to the salad with the dressing before I head off to work. So it's a basic grab-and-go in the morning. And I use my own homemade balsamic vinaigrette. One of the big mistakes people make is they they eat a healthy salad and then put store-bought dressing on it, which is just terrible stuff. So I make my own uh, balsamic vinaigrette. And I make a batch of that every week or as needed. And it's olive oil and balsamic vinegar and a dash of Bragg's apple cider for the probiotics. So that's living apple cider. And if we have eggs, I will boil up a half a dozen or so. And that'll give me protein for salads for a week, even if someone poaches, pun intended, a couple of my half dozen eggs. However, if someone sees the boiled eggs and decides to whip up a big bowl of egg salad, my prep and my plans are foiled, then I have to do something else. Uh, I prefer to make my own beans and chickpeas from dry bagged, uh, not out of the can. So those take a lot of work. They got to be soaked and rinsed a few times. Probably takes 24, 48 hours. And it's a batch process. Takes a couple days. I'll eat any kind of beans. Lentils are good too. After they're soaked and rinsed, they go into the rice cooker for a day. And this process produces one or two containers of beans, cooked beans. And the beans last uh, two or three days in the fridge. And they're versatile. You can put them into your salads. You can eat them with your dinners. They're wonderful. All right. So I'm not going to read that inventory list. You get it. Dinner, for me, as I mentioned before, is the trickiest meal because I'm typically eating late and exhausted. And I typically don't have time to cook and have low willpower. So I need to have something ready to eat. That really helps. So I try to keep it simple and batch up at least a filling base that I can get in right away to keep from making really bad decisions when I'm exhausted. So 95% of the time, I'm having a dinner bowl. I usually rely on some of the combination of cooked vegetables, beans, and brown rice with some sort of sauce in it so if if i if i prep the beans chickpeas lentils those are great for filling for the bottom of the bowl once or twice a week you can cook those i try to prep some wild rice or brown rice or quinoa for dinners and those will give you a couple of meals if i have prepped some meat i can chuck some of that up and throw it in and I'll, I'll sauté a big skillet of veggies to go with whatever I have, the rice or the beans or the quinoa, and that, that works out really well. So a good, good veggies for my big skillet are Brussels sprouts, cabbage, mushrooms, broccoli, cauliflower, squash, peppers, anything else can be sautéed. And this whole process requires nothing but a dollop of olive oil, some garlic, some onions, some fresh ginger, and some stock. So that's what I do for dinner. Um, and I don't freeze any of this stuff because for two reasons. One, when I freeze it, I forget about it. <laughs> and two, it takes too long to defrost. And I don't really like the taste of frozen vegetables or canned vegetables. So anything in a can kind of qualifies as, as, um, packaged foods and I try to avoid it. So snacks, what do I do for snacks? My favorite primary snacks are fruits and nuts. I eat, believe it or not, I eat four to five pieces of fruit a day. And these are apples, pears, oranges, grapefruit, plums, peaches, whatever's in season. And I usually store these in the fruit bowl on the counter. But if they're ripening too fast, I throw them into the fridge to slow them down a little bit. I eat unsalted peanuts and other nuts just for fun at night. I love nuts. They are very calorie dense, so you have to be careful. If I have time, I will make hummus from chickpeas. Sometimes I'll buy pre-made hummus, but I have my suspicions that they sneak a lot of sugar into that. And occasionally I'll have rice cakes with peanut butter, but I try to use the brown rice cakes, and I have suspicions about those too. So I try to use healthier brands of peanut butter as well, but that's, uh, that's store-bought stuff. And I'll also eat celery stalks with peanut butter. Very good. Very filling. So those are the things I keep in snack inventory. The other thing I make is smoothies. I like to make green or berry smoothies for after my big workouts. And in those green smoothies, I put in vegan protein powder, yeast, A handful of dark leafy greens like spinach or kale or chard, Uh, some frozen bananas, any other overripe fruit I have hanging around, frozen or fresh berries, and then fill it up with almond milk, blend it up, and a batch of those will make three 16-ounce servings. And if I can find empty water bottles, I'll put them in those. If I can't, I'll put them in old Starbucks cups, which are uh, a logistical nightmare to transport around. But what the heck, you use what you have. And I put those in the fridge. So I, on a build week, I usually have three big workouts a week. So one batch of smoothies will cover three hard workouts a week. You have them right after your workout. Make sense? So that's how. I'm running strong, healthy, injury-free, and lean for this year's Boston Marathon. If you have any questions, you can ask me, and I am going to post this. And now for today's featured interview. So, uh, Colin, why don't you give us the 200 words on who you are and what you're doing?
1: Well, my name's Colin Thornton. I'm a ultra runner, skier, mountaineer. I'm originally from Scotland. I moved to the French Alps and lived in Chamonix for 10 years where there's a lot more running, mountaineering, skiing. And just last year, I visited this place called Romsdal in Norway Amongst a few yards and some quite spectacular mountains, and decided Chamonix was getting just a little too busy and a bit too hectic for my liking, and moved to Romsdal two months ago to discover more mountains, quiet and remote, and still spectacular. I like to go running with friends, I like to introduce areas to new people, and I thought it'd be a great place to start up a, a business where I would be guiding people, my girlfriend. Um, the mountains here. I've got a good um, background in a lot of ultra rays, especially in America. Um, I've run Leadville 100, Bear 100, Angelese Crest 100 and Run Rabbit Run. And I thought I could use my knowledge of these ultras and pass it on to other people who would like to come and explore a new region and a new country, a place that's quiet and quite relatively untouched. I also compete a lot in the sky running races in, in Europe. So very technical, steep. And this Romsdal region also has a lot of very steep technical ridge running. So I thought it was a great place to kind of introduce newcomers or even if people have ran races before and looking for a bit more confidence. I thought it's a great place to bring new people. And I'm just going to start running a series of courses over here from this summer. It's going to be a few different ones. There'll be an introduction to sky running, a stepping up to ultras, and a Discover Romsdal. So three different courses. Where Discover Romsdal will just be what it says on the tin. <laughs> and discovering the area. It will be for any ability, from a beginner to a seasoned runner who does a lot of races. To just want to come on a holiday and explore somewhere new for four days. We've got an intro to sky running as well, which is again that's what it is. It's for anyone who's wanting to get into sky running races. Isn't so comfortable in technical terrain and. I'm happy to take people out and help them out on that side of their running. And as well, the Stepping Up to Ultras course is going to be just that as well. Anyone running currently 10, 20, 30k races want to push it up a bit towards 100 mile. I can pass on some knowledge on everything from nutrition, pacing a race. Yeah, I just like to speak to people and give them my, pass on my information from all my years of running. And I like to do it in a place like this in Norway where... Compared to like Chamonix and the Alps and even places like Boulder and Colorado, I think are all getting a bit overrun with people, excuse the pun, and bring them somewhere really quiet and remote and wild with absolutely spectacular scenery. don't really know what else I can say about that. Yeah, we've got a website, com. You can check that out. Um, it's up and live now. We've also got a Facebook group. So you're originally from Scotland. Did you do any of the
0: analogous fell running or mountain running? I know they have some really rough stuff out there, some really longer distance stuff.
1: Yeah, I've done some of the hill running and fell running in Scotland, like the classic Jura fell race. Uh, the newer ones on the Seed Now are the Glencoe Skyline, and um, goat fell race on the Isle of Arran. Yeah, very, very rough, steep terrain, unmarked courses. You'll run in any weather. Yeah, quite wild and tough, and is it? The Norway terrain is quite similar. There's a lot of rough things here, but there's also some really nice flowy single track through the valleys up to lakes, down the fjords, if you want steep and rough, we've got that here as well.
0: Yeah, and so it's a little bit different than France or Colorado because I don't think you have the altitude in Norway, right? No. Nope. Yeah, you've uh, got the terrain but not the altitude. Yeah, exactly.
1: I've always said this. I've spent a lot of time in Colorado over my past four or five years. Colorado definitely has the altitude, but anywhere I've run in Colorado has doesn't come close to the steepness and the roughness that you get in Norway or in France or in Scotland. I mean, the steepness of some of the terrain over here is... And people think as well though, that Norway is quite small, but you're always starting at sea level, going up maybe 3,000, 4,000 feet. Whereas in Colorado, you are going to massive elevations up some of the 14ers, but you're starting usually around 10,000 feet. So right. the actual amount of meters climbed you do is, is very similar here. It's steeper here, but yeah, Colorado definitely has that thinner air, which makes it difficult. Yeah, it'd be better for folks um,
0: running at up from sea level. They're just starting to learn how to do that stuff. You don't have to deal with the altitude as well because the altitude can make people from sea level sick.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. yeah I was looking at the pictures of Ronsdale, And it's spectacular um, scenery. I suppose it's probably raining most of the time though, right? (laughs) You have certain windows
1: where you get good weather up there? Uh, It's actually not so bad. It's not as bad as Scotland. Uh, We were here in the summer visiting for a couple of weeks in June. And actually, we had two weeks of blue skies. And the amazing thing about here in the summer for June and July, especially if your legs can take you, you can run 24 hours a day because the sun doesn't go down. Right. Uh, because you're up close yeah, you to never, the Arctic Circle. Yeah, we're, we're not as far up as the Arctic Circle. It's just that we are very far north. You have daylight all day.
0: Yep. <laughs> and the, the terrain know. is, um, like I said, spectacular. And it's varied, too, because you have the mountains themselves, but you also have the fjords. And the fjords yeah. are just amazing. Right. And so a fjord is uh, sort of a gouged out piece of rock in the coastline where you have this long bay that goes in. And I guess it would have been scraped out by the glaciers in the ancient times. Right. But just uh, it's got these precipitous stone drops into the sea. And uh, it's just amazing. It's sort of jaw dropping.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It makes the mountains look so much bigger i mean saying the mountains from sea level to summit are about three thousand feet three and a half thousand feet they look way bigger than that just because they're shooting straight out of the sea by the looks of things yeah it's really something else for people i've never seen that before and you're right being beside the water just add something i've spent so much time in chamonix and the alps or even in colorado you've got your lakes but it just the landscape and the views is over here or up here. There's just something I don't think you find anywhere else. And it doesn't seem to be a a lot of
0: forest in the pictures I was seeing. So is that basically deforested?
1: No, no, there there is forest. I wouldn't say the tree line goes particularly high. A lot of the time you spend above the tree line. There is forest, but it's not really the same kind of... It's hard to describe. Yeah, it's kind of smaller trees and more bushes and things like that, but not big. Right. Right, not like uh, the forest in France or Germany,
0: where it's very old growth.
1: No, 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 it's not like that at all.
0: Right, sort of scrubby. Yeah, and there's the alpine lakes, which would be similar to what you'd see in Colorado as well, where you have a mountain valley and there's a a pristine lake right in the middle of it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I can run around here and I will say to myself, well, this is just like being in Colorado. (laughs) Yep. And then, when... then other times i run around and think, well, this is just like Scotland. I mean, it, it's got a bit of everything. So where you are in Norway there, it's pretty sparsely populated. You're saying there's not much going on up there? Yeah, yeah. It's not overrun. Where we're based out of, the small town of Andalsnes, I'm not really sure of the population in Andeltsnys. A couple of thousand people. There's not much that goes on there, I'll admit. There's a small new climbing wall and a mountaineering museum, maybe a two-coffee shop, climbing store. Supermarket, so there's not a lot, but you do get there is a tourist trade here in summer for people who like to come hiking yeah and camping, but it's still relatively untouched. again, a lot of people who want to go running and camping and hiking go to the Alps, and not as many people come to Norway at the moment. Yeah, it's just somewhere everybody should see
0: <laughs> so you and your partner are setting up these sort of courses to take people and guide them out into the different parts of the geography
1: yep exactly that there's so many different because the fjord goes in and out of different valleys there's so many different little microclimates and areas and different mountains all around and it changes from fjord to fjord scenery and the technicality of the, the running and hiking as well. Yeah. So, are these going to be mostly day trips? Or are you going to do
0: some overnighters
1: out there? We can do day trips for people. That won't be a problem. The majority of the courses we're running will be for four days. Okay. At, at the moment, the four dayers won't include accommodation, it'll include lunch every day and transport from the airport, transport to and from the trailheads from their accommodation. We'll have a, a local kind of meeting point for briefings and things at the local cafe here and we'll have one course at the moment which runs for two and a half days it's a friday to a sunday and that's the mountain and fjords and it'll be two nights accommodation uh, and a lovely little hotel here Um, and that includes breakfast lunch dinner transport it's kind of the full works yeah, um, maybe for the Sunday at the moment. We can also do uh, day hikes. There's so many different mountains and lakes and valleys to run. Giving a list of all the things you can do in a day is almost impossible. So the kind of day things we're happy to do, but if people would contact us through email or social media, just giving us an idea of what they're looking for, then we can cater for that without a problem. Sure. So
0: when you say it's uh, overrun down in uh, down in France, is what you're saying that if you go out for a run, you're going to run into people, you're going to see trash, you're going to see that sort of thing? You're never that far away from seeing civilization?
1: Exactly that. You're never far from civilization. You've got that spot on. That's one thing I love about Colorado. Definitely going to southern Colorado. You You can get into really wild and remote areas very easily and not see people for a long time or... There's no towns around. In the Alps, yeah, it's a beautiful, spectacular place. I won't say it's a bad place to go, but we had been living just because of the boom of trail running now. It kinda looked, people think Chamonix is like the mecca for trail running. Yeah. But there's a, there's amazing running around there. But And if Didn't, you go in the off-season, so October and things like that, yeah, you can have trails to yourself. You'll see nobody. But you're still always looking down on Chamonix. You're still always looking at ski lifts. You're never getting... Ah, it sounds a bit corny, but you're never getting like a real mountain experience. I don't feel. Didn't I read that Killian Journay moved out of there as well,
0: just because of that? Because people were bugging him. <laughs>
1: there was yeah. too many trail runners around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's um, Killian's a good friend of ours, and um, okay. well, he basically opened my eyes to this area. He moved here, and actually, was, we came to see him in the summer. Oh, and, okay. Now it all ties together. Now I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a good
0: friend, and. He was coming to this area, and I'd never heard of it. And now you're going to ruin it for him, Colin, by dragging all these newbies up there.
1: Well, that's it. It's, I don't want to <laughs> put myself in the foot because, like, I want people to come and see it, but I don't want it to be somebody that makes the place overrun. We'll try and manage it as best we can to not cause a disturbance amongst the locals and make the place too overrun, but I still think it's so special that people need to come and see it. And there's so many remote areas you can take people running that... Uh, and you'll just not see people. Nobody will see you. It's, it won't be a problem. So have you talked
0: to other folks who are doing these sort of tours and these sort of packages? Because I would think there's a bit of a challenge in who shows up, right? What do you do if somebody shows up and they're 60 pounds overweight, walked away from a desk and smoking cigarettes, right? You want to make sure you're not hurting people and people are getting what they want, right?
1: No, no, Absolutely. Definitely when people start signing up to courses, they'll get an email, we'll keep in contact with them. And we don't want like an interview from people to see if they can come. But we'd like some kind of previous experience. And even we can bunch groups together and split them even if we think one group will be a bit stronger than the other group, we can just cater for the needs. Of a weaker group or a stronger group, we can go for complete beginners. It's not a problem, but yeah, yeah, I understand. You can have people sign up, and somebody's a very strong runner, been doing it for ten years, and you've got somebody that might have yeah, never, never ran more than a few kilometers before. It's an interesting dynamic because you get a fair amount of
0: elevation in these courses, so you know you're going to have people hiking no matter what, right?
1: Oh yeah, even the best people out here hike on a lot of the (laughs) trails. uh they're so steep but i mean we can still cater for people that don't even want to do a lot of elevation there's still plenty to do here it's spectacular without having all that elevation involved just running up to the lakes and things like that it's that that's easy enough to do what are the temperatures like that time of year in the summer what was it doing in the summer i mean your max will be in the mid 20 uh last so about Room Great. temperature, yeah, 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 yeah. So it never gets too hot. Uh, no, no, it's a nice temperature for running. Um, yeah, you've, you've got the sea there, so the sea probably
0: mitigates it, exactly. Makes it exactly. nice and probably nice and humid, too.
1: Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: yeah. good. Yeah. So, where do you see this going, Colin? Where do you want to be in five years, as they say in the interviews?
1: I would just like to see some of the courses getting full every year and just bringing a nice number of people over i mean we limit the courses to it'll be 10 people on the mountain and fjords discover romsdale and stepping up to ultras will be limited to 10 runners on each course the intro to sky running will be actually limited to six because it's going to be more technical and we might need uh, two people to go out with the group yeah but if we can have full courses it would be really really nice Again, we'll probably we'll run one of each course a month. So we'll have four courses a month, really. But again, what I, I don't want it to be is every single week bringing people here and yeah, getting overrun. Just two, three, four days at a time, on and off, week on, week off. That could be nice. But yeah, as far as the, the business goes of Run Romsdale, yeah, I just want to offer a good experience for people and uh, people feel safe, have a good time, take some good pictures, uh, yeah. improve. Yeah, definitely. People taking
0: pictures should get people interested because it is spectacular. Yeah, some of the stuff and the sky running where you're up on the sort of the razor edge of a mountain top of a right across yeah. the the top. That's uh, jaw dropping.
1: Yeah, it's amazing, and especially here when you can look down at the fjords and things when you're running around and and you don't see another town or village or chairlift. There's nothing else in sight. It's yeah, it's something else. And then when you can do that when there's the midnight sun sitting there as well. You can run till two, three, four in the morning if you feel like it. <laughs>
0: yeah, I don't know if I'd be looking down the fjords if I was running across one of those razor edges. <laughs> I think I might yeah. be watching where I was putting my feet.
1: Yeah, well, you need to come over and do the intro to sky running and you know, I'll get you more comfortable at doing that. Yeah,
0: well I, I just signed up to um pace a buddy of mine at Leadville. Oh uh, ah, nice. And I'm doing the overnight loop, the one the back over hook pass, so I have to figure out how to train for that. I'm a pretty strong mountain runner, good trail runner, but I'm at sea level, so i got to figure out how to get some altitude.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, I might see you at Leadville because we'll be there and we'll probably be helping a friend out actually this year. Oh, okay. That'll be cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah, not that anybody ever sees anybody in those races, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. You never see the people who you plan to see, but you arbitrarily run into other people that you didn't expect to see, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Just uh, it's all serendipitous yeah
1: so who's your partner is she uh doing this with you as well yeah well, she's sitting right next to me now oh there you go yeah. Yeah. maybe tell you a about who she is as well
2: yeah i'm sorry i'm french so my accent is not so good <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's okay yeah.
2: so yeah uh, my name is helen yeah i live in chamonix for 12 years and i met colin over there yeah we decided to move in norway together originally i'm a nurse i graduated as a nurse a few years ago and uh, through my studying I managed to find time to do a few races uh, in Switzerland, Italy, uh, Colorado. <laughs> Colorado, yeah France. I, I'm not an ultra runner so, well the um, longest distance I could do is 70k and wow. um, I'm more kind of yeah Marathon is good and on the flowing run, yeah. well, yeah. that's good for me. But that's a good, uh, where well, I completely well together. Cool. some more the technical part and I'm more the smooth part. Like.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so, uh, yeah. so how did you guys come to the decision to pack up and go to Norway? Does that ruffle any feathers in the families?
1: Well, I think I originally moved from Scotland to Chamonix and kind of the family were kind of supportive with me moving away to France, but they knew I needed to do something new. So I think they were kind of used to it when I told them I was leaving France to then move to another country. Yeah. Uh, and they kind of support that. Although I think... Um,
2: <laughs> from my side, it's a bit more difficult that yeah. the first time I move abroad of my country. So... My mom, especially it's a mom, so she was a bit more <laughs> stressed about that um, movement, but she's still supporting us. And, yeah, 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 yeah.
0: So that's great. You guys are you guys are having an adventure. Good for you.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah it sure, it's an adventure anyway. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. So no matter what happens, you're gonna learn something. Yeah. All right, you'll be uh, better people out the other side. So good for you. That's great. I hope everything goes well with your business and I hope you meet some great people along the way. It sounds like a great uh, opportunity for the right type of people to get out and uh, have some fun and see some uh, amazing geography and some amazing sites out there in Norway. So sounds very interesting. Yeah. And it's not that far. I mean, how do you get to where you are from? What's the biggest metro the biggest airport near you
1: the biggest airport near us is a town called moldy which is one hour away and either the bus or by car and to get to moldy you get here via oslo so basically anyone wanting to fly over goes through oslo and then it's a 50 minute flight from oslo up here so it's not actually as far as we say it's quite remote and quiet it is but it's still relatively easy for people to access yeah most airline companies all fly to oslo for sure and even from oslo if as i say it's only a 50 minute flight up if not there's a, a direct train line from um, oslo straight up to Andalsnes, which is the town that we live in
0: yeah no that was going to ask that because typically uh especially that part of the world the trains are very good so and that might actually be m- much more fun than taking a short flight is actually riding the train especially uh through that geography right
1: yeah so. absolutely the train goes through some well it goes through all the spectacular scenery on the way up so it's right. good for it when you're on your way up in the train because yeah flying in can be spectacular as well actually when you're coming into lands you kind of fly in through all the mountains but you don't always get a window seat to see that and the train well yeah yeah Yep. All right. Well, it sounds brilliant.
0: I'm fascinated by this. I'm going to have to get over there sometime. Never been to Norway. Absolutely. So, uh, all right, I'll let you guys go. Get back to your running around in the fjords. I know it's uh, late there, so I appreciate you talking to me today. And uh, give us again the uh, the
1: website links and the Facebook links. www.ronromsdal.com. Instagram, we're just on Instagram, is Ron Romsdal. Facebook, we're Ron Romsdal. Um, Strava will be up soon. Uh, I've not started it, but it will be Ron Romsdale. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, www.runromsdale.com. Uh, look yep. us up. Send us an email if you have any questions whatsoever.
0: Yep. And Romsdale is R O M S. Yep. is in Sam, D is in Doug, A L. Yes. Correct. All right. Brilliant. Thanks for coming. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Talk to soon. All very right. Bye
1: bye. <laughs> bye bye.
2: Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know.
0: A short review of a short book on fear. There is an imprint in the UK, part of Random House Publishing, called Quick Reads, that publishes short books, or at least used to publish short books. I know this because I bought one. It was called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan Jeffers, and I did not know I was buying a short book. I don't feel cheated, but it does explain some of the clumsiness of the prose. I didn't know I was reading an abridged edition until I was done and I was reading the dust cover. The book was recommended by the author of another book I read recently, No More Mr. Nice Guy, as a bit of a companion piece to that book's content. And apparently the original work is a hefty 217 pages, whereas the one I read weighed in at a scant 110 pages. And it makes me wonder if I'm only going to be able to get rid of 49.3% of my fear. Much to my surprise... It was originally published in 1997. That's more than 30 years ago. So this outfit in the UK called Quick Reads is on a mission to create more readers by taking books and making them accessible. And they do this by removing every other page, I guess. It reminds me of that scene in Catch-22 where Yosarian is redacting letters home by removing all the adjectives and pronouns or something. It only took me two sittings to read through the book. I got some insights out of it. Some of it killed old ground, but some of it was fabulous. And it makes perfect sense now, because I found the prose really hard to pay attention to. I found I kept losing the scent of the points in multiple places as I was reading, and now I know it's because there was a lot of connective tissue shaved out. They shaved out the connective tissue and left the meat, and that made it hard to digest. First thing she says, which I mentioned previously at some point in my comments on Dr. Glover's book, is to say, whatever happens, you can handle it. And if you're having anxiety about unknown outcomes, simply remind yourself that whatever happens, you're going to handle it. And that takes the energy out of the unknown. And next, she reminds us that fear never really goes away. And if it does, you should worry, because that means you're not growing. If you're growing as a person, there's always going to be some unknown territory and important stakes, and you're going to be anxious about those. She says the only way to get rid of fear is to do something. And again, we see that by biasing yourself to take action. You stop being the victim and take control of your power. And she calls this the pain-to-power spectrum. Where you are now is pain, The object is to move from pain to power, and how you do that is by taking action. And I am going to quote the book now. Pushing through fear is less frightening than living with the constant fear that comes from feeling helpless. But the most wonderful and important concept that she gifted me was the concept of a no-lose decision. The no-lose decision, in partnership with the I Can Handle It, will turn all your anxiety about outcomes into personal power. I know, it sounds very new-agey, but how does this work? Well, most of us are hardwired to look at decisions as win or lose outcomes. Standing where where we are, at the decision point in time, we don't know which path will be the better choice. We fear making a bad decision because we have this win lose assumption. If we choose wrong, it's a loss or a failure. And we get anxiety about making that choice. We may even refuse to make a decision because we so fear being wrong or being accountable for that bad decision and the failure. And it can lead to a lot of anxiety and paralysis. Instead, She says, All you have to do is look at the decision as a win win instead of a win lose. If you decide one way, you win. If you decide the other way, you win too. The worst thing you can do is stay put or avoid the decision. That's helplessness. Take your power, make a decision. If you get down the path and things don't turn out as you hoped or expected, you still win. At the very least, you have learned something. You have gone somewhere. If you go into it with that attitude, either choice is probably going to be more successful because you carry that power and positive momentum into it. And, of course, she reminds us that there is no straight line path in life. Our lives are squiggly lines with lots of learning and course corrections, and that's the way we want it to be. That makes it exciting, fulfilling, and worthwhile. She wraps up with a remonstration to say yes more, i.e. see those open doors and walk through them, and to ultimately choose love. If you choose love, you have a leg up and live in an abundant universe. And I don't know what she said in the other 107 pages because I didn't get to read them. But these pages, albeit a bit choppy, had some good nuggets. So if you are afraid And have a short attention span, try reading the abridged version of Feel the Fear and do it anyway. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, you have traversed the dangerous naked spine of a rocky mountain to the fjord at the end of the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-404. Careful, you don't twist an ankle. Next time, we are going to talk with Julia, who has a great story and a passion for telling it. I think you'll really like that. And I hope you noticed I'm trying to re-energize the podcast, Baby Steps. I let it go fallow for a while, but I'm working on a lot of projects and life gets weird sometimes, but it's all good. And I am truly thankful for your company and the opportunity for us to connect. So thank you. Uh, my training is hard, but boringly predictable right now. I'm getting in 50-ish miles a week on five days of hard work on my big weeks when I'm uh, on build weeks, and I'm typically doing three hard workouts a week. I have been doing more speed work this cycle, which I really I like, and I feel like I need that, so that's good. I had a workout last week where I knocked off 10 Yasso 800s at my target race time, which supposedly is a positive predictor. I had a great workout Tuesday this week on the treadmill again because the weather was awful, and it was a one-hour step-up run, which is actually an easy tempo session for me because this is a step-back week. On a build week, that would be something else, like an hour-and-a-half step-up run or more. For an hour step-up run, you warm up for, you know, 10 or 20 minutes, you warm up, and then you run at a tempo pace for 30 minutes, and then you cool down for the last 10 minutes. And at first, I was struggling a little when I went into that tempo, and I was breathing hard, I was battling the workout. But something happened. At 20 minutes into the tempo, so 40 minutes into the workout, it was like a, a switch flipped, and I felt great. And I dropped the pace. I just kept dropping the pace because I felt great. And I finally ended up at 30 seconds per mile faster than my goal marathon pace. And I held that for the last 10 minutes of the step up. I somehow got into flow state and was just flying and feeling great. It was effortless. It was great. And that's why we do it, right? Every once in a while, it feels effortless, and that's a beautiful thing. So I'll leave you with one more word play from my current fascination with the history of English. My favorite Old English word so far is weefer which translates to going weaver. Gonga weaver. That's the old English word for spider. Isn't that great? You can use it in a sentence like the Episcene server at Starbucks was frightened by a scary gonga weaver. And I will see you out there. And then
1: he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned he laughed so hard it made him
2: cry.
0: Yeah, it seems to be a lot of background noise here. Maybe I can filter it out later. I think the guy's doing floor cleaning out there, too. Tried shutting off the auto filter and doing it a little differently. Let's see. Let's see how the gain works out. Hello, my friends, and welcome. Well, my friends, you have traversed the dangerous naked spine of a. N- <laughs> we'll take that over again, maybe. <laughs>